hope that all of you have been enjoying your walk with the Lord today and have been had the opportunity to spend some time today uh, reading uh, God's Word and reflecting on God's Word is a vital part of our spiritual life. Feeding on the Word is is necessary and just being reminded of promises, reminded of God's Word and His uh, faithfulness through the years as we read through the Scripture and to build that reservoir of knowledge. And there is something that is so refreshing about reading the Word of God that it focuses our attention on that which is eternal, that which is everlasting, that which is stable. And it reminds us, especially if you read through the Old Testament, it reminds us that politics has been much worse in other generations and other cultures, and God has provided sustenance and stability for his people, and he is always our our fortress. A couple of announcements to uh, remind you about. Number one is we're going to have a uh, just a family time on Saturday, September the 1st. That's Labor Day weekend. We have, uh, we'll provide food and have a sign-up list for people to bring a few things. And it'll be a good time for the families, for kids to come together. And we have a film we're going to show. And uh, I'm going to look at one other film. But right now, uh, I've looked at this, a film called Alone Yet Not Alone, a Christian film. It's based on a true story of of um, two girls who were kidnapped by uh, Delaware Indians in the French and Indian War. And as they learned that God would stay with them and provide for them and protect them even in the midst of that. And then I'm looking at another film. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Um, it came out in the early 70s called The Hiding Place. And that's a tremendous film. I haven't seen it since it came out, and it was in the theater, but uh, I look forward to seeing it again. And so those are two really, really tremendous movies. But it's important for the body of Christ to get together, to get to know each other, and to enjoy that time of horizontal fellowship because of our uh, vertical fellowship with God. Before we begin our time tonight, let's just bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the, with the Lord. One of the things that I want to remind you about is that the key, I think, the key term that is used in the Scripture for defining the role of the believer in the church age spiritual life is to walk by the Spirit. I've taught this many times, but in recent conversations, I'm not sure people really get it yet. And that is that you've heard to be filled with the Spirit so much that that's secondary. That is a consequence of your walk. The overriding terms, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in the Spirit, are the key terms. When we walk with the Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit fills us with his word. But the primary command is to walk by the Spirit or abide in Christ. And so that's what's important. That's why we keep short accounts, and that's why we, how we focus on our spiritual life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then let's um, go to the Lord in prayer, and I'll open us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we take forgiveness of sin for granted. We've been saved many years in many cases here, and it's maybe a long time since we really wrestled with the fact that we were sinners, that we had failed, and that we had failed you, and that we were under condemnation. But what a joyous thing it is to know that our sins are forgiven. We can have a we are in right relationship positionally with you. We're adopted into your royal family, and and we have this unique fellowship being in Christ. And yet we realize the fullness of that as we abide in him and as we walk by the Spirit. And as we do so, your Spirit fills us with his word. He, he produces fruit in our lives. And he is, the, uh, he is the absolute necessity and prerequisite for all spiritual growth and enablement. 
Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you would strengthen and encourage us. Father, we're also mindful of Betty Riley, who's in surgery right now and is usually here in Bible class. We pray for her in this uh, emergency uh, surgery on her aorta. It's experimental. And Father, we just pray for her, for comfort for her family uh, during this time. Father, we also pray for Daniel Smolyar, thankful that his surgery went well this morning, and pray for the surgery that he's going to have, the follow-up surgery Thursday. And we pray that everything will go well there, and he will heal and recover very quickly. Now, Father, we pray that as we study, we can focus upon your word, not upon our lives or our details or our plans and things going on that so easily distract us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 4 as we are progressing in our study, understanding the biblical parameters for worship. And what struck me, and it struck me for many years as we read through Genesis, is that there's a lot that's going on in Genesis 1 to 11, and we just sort of get a very brief summary And we have to stop and think about some of the things that are said because they tell us that Adam or Eve or Cain and Abel do certain things, and we don't have any background in the scriptures where it states that they were to do those things, why they were to do those things, or any of those details. We just have a very short, brief accounts of these things. And it's only as we understand the framework of the Pentateuch that when um, Moses wrote out these five books at the beginning of the Old Testament, that the, the preface in these first 11 chapters would be read and understood by the Israelites in light of what they knew based on what they had heard when they're on the when they're at Mount Sinai, and there they were given all of the instructions, or Moses was given all the instructions. He gave it to them to build the tabernacle, all the furniture of the tabernacle, all the details on the sacrificial systems. Many of the sacrifice they would have already been familiar with, as they had developed subsequent to the flood of Noah. So they weren't ignorant of these things. They they were. They were already present, and so when you get to a situation, as we're going to get to in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord, they would have understood much more about what was going on there than we, because they had all this uh, firsthand experience. So we have to talk about some of those things to understand the dynamics. So tonight what we're going to look at is the development of sacrifice because last time we ended with the sin of Adam and Eve. They are cast out of the garden. An army of cherubs was placed around the Garden of Eden to prevent man from re-entering the sanctuary of God on the earth. We learned certain things about worship, that man was created in God's image in order to work and to tend the garden, as it's usually translated, but I pointed out that these are terms related to priestly service, to keep and to tend, to work the, not working the garden. They weren't put in the garden as gardeners. They didn't have weeds at that time. They didn't have problems with uh, needing to fertilize uh, the plants. They didn't need to prune the trees in the garden. Everything was absolutely perfect, so God didn't put them in there to be gardeners but custodians and to expand the dominion of man as he was to rule over the planet so he is a king priest male and female created to be a king priest and they're ejected from the garden which was the sanctuary where they met with god uh, because of sin and so we see two things develop we see it in a very Uh, abbreviated sense right at the end of chapter 3 where I stopped last time that God clothed them with animal skins and that that just brings it to bear a lot of activity that's summarized in a very very short sentence and then the next thing we see at the end of chapter 4 is the statement that 
the last line in verse 26, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And this is a significant statement that is developed over the next couple of books in, on into Exodus. And that's a fundamental aspect of worship is calling on the name of the Lord. Some people think that means prayer. Some people think that means evangelism. Some people make, think that means different things, but we have to see what the Bible actually says because if you study the Word, the Word will make it, uh, will make it clear. So we're going to begin tonight by moving to the next level in talking about worship. One of the things we saw before was man's created to be a worshipful being. He is to worship God. He is to serve God. Their failure came because they didn't know, Eve did not know the Word of God. And if we don't know the Word of God, we will fail in our ability to worship God because the Word of God must be kept precisely. And we have numerous examples I pointed out last time where God gives precise instructions, and when those are violated, then sometimes there's uh, terrible consequences. And we think of the uh, two sons of Aaron, Abihu and Nadab, and they offered what the Scripture describes as strange fire uh, before the Lord. And God had been very specific as to the kind of incense that should be offered in the uh, in the tabernacle at the altar of incense. And he had a reason for that. And apparently, somehow, they got some other incense. They may have purchased it from some uh, traders, some uh, going along the way, some uh, Midianites or others who were uh, the merchants of the ancient world. However, they got a hold of it. They thought, well, this will be fine. It, Smells good, looks good, it's just as good as what God had said. And so they're doing something that has plagued man since Cain and Abel, and that is they are defining worship on their own terms. And so when they went into the tabernacle, they put this uh, alternate, unauthorized incense on the altar of incense. God took their lives immediately. Because God wants worship to be on his terms and not on our terms. And yet throughout the generations, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we, we see that the trend of the sin nature is for man to redefine God in terms of his own image. As the joke goes, God created man in his own image and now man is returning the favor and creating God in his image, in man's image. And so we've anthropomorphized God. We've made him like a human being. And this is completely, uh, completely false. So we've redefined God and we've redefined worship in terms of how it makes us feel rather than what truly honors and glorifies God. And so just in terms of re review... We saw that in the original earth, the original creation, there are three basic areas. There's the whole earth, then there was an area known as uh, Eden, which is uh, then subdivided into a smaller area, a garden that was planted east in Eden, and that is where Adam and Eve walked with the Lord. And so we see those those same distinctions in the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard, there's the holy place, and the sanctuary where uh, the priest met with God is in the holy of holies. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were veils that had cherubim embroidered into those uh, veils in order to show that the sanctuary of God was still being protected by those cherubim. So we saw that there were other similarities, so that the tabernacle, the worship that God gave to Israel was to remind them of what was lost, but also look forward to the future. We saw this basic principle that failure to know the word leads to a breakdown in worship. It leads to sin, and sin leads to separation from God. And so Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. They no longer have access 
to the tree of life. God is not walking with them every day. There is a barrier that is between God and man. But God has provided a means of restoration that is based on sacrifice. This is uh, implied uh, when God makes clothing for man. In verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and, and clothed them. This was in contrast, and it's really important to pay attention to a lot of the contrast going on in these chapters. When Adam and Eve realized what had happened when they were when they sinned, they tried to solve the problem, and it was not substantial. It was incomplete. It was not sufficient, and that's indicated. You don't see it in the English, but it, they made for themselves coverings. But that word in the Hebrew for coverings, as I pointed out last time, is a word that is most often, it's not used a lot, but most often it's translated as a belt. I think once as a girdle, which is also very narrow, something that just covered uh, the loins. It was basically loincloths. It's insufficient to cover everything. And the contrast is that when God clothed them, he made them tunics. And the word there translated a tunic was a term that would describe the, the robes of the priests. It was something that, that went from head to toe. They were fully clothed, emphasizing that God's provision is sufficient and complete, whereas man's ability to solve his own problem is always insufficient and incomplete. We saw also that Adam called his wife's name Eve, and I talked a little bit about how down through uh, the generations that man rejected God and began to pervert the story of creation, began to pervert the meaning of God. <coughs> I use the illustration of a Phoenician um, goddess who is the mother uh, of, of the, uh, called the goddess of life, the goddess of living, and she's pictured by a serpent, and serpents show up in various ways in ancient uh, polytheism and ancient temples and things of that nature. And so there's a complete breakdown that occurs uh, because of the corruption of sin, and this is depicted as we, as we go along. Now, as we move from the sufficiency of God's grace at the end of chapter 3, we quickly shift to the first generation. We're introduced to them in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And the root meaning of the word Cain is to acquire. And it's interesting. Some people wonder what the original language was. I'll just throw this in for extra free of charge material. But if Hebrew wasn't the original language in the garden, then none of these names would make sense because they're all names that are given meaning, but they're Hebrew names. And so you have names like Adam and Chava and Cain and Hevel. Uh, these are all names that are Hebrew and have meaning and significance in uh, Hebrew language. So this would have been very likely the the original language. So at the end of chapter 3, we see, see, as I stated, that God made tunics of skins. That means he had to kill animals, so they experienced death for the first time. There would have been bleeding, so there would have indicating a blood sacrifice. God would have had to teach them how to uh, treat the leather so that it would be soft and supple and could be used for clothing. All of this takes a long time. And so even though we read about this in a very short verse, in verse 21, what it describes is something that would have taken hours or days to accomplish. But it, but since the Israelites already knew about how to do all of that, Moses doesn't need to go into detail. They get the point. They understand uh, what is going on. So that sacrifice, as I pointed out last time, is now introduced in verse 21. Then we're going to get into the story, familiar story, of Cain and Abel, the two brothers, Cain being the firstborn, Abel... Um, 
as the secondborn, and Abel is going to be murdered by Cain. But this chapter contributes to our understanding of worship. What we've seen so far is that man is created to worship. He is designed to serve God, and that because of sin, now man comes to God's presence on the basis of sacrifice. See, those that plays itself out into the New Testament. We come to God to worship him on the basis of a sacrifice, that sin has to be dealt with. And as we'll see as we develop it, not only is sin dealt with, the penalty of sin dealt with by the death of Christ is the Lamb of God, the ultimate uh, sacrifice, the one, the sacrifice toward which all other sacrifices point. But also we have to be cleansed of sin. Cleansing is the point uh, of sacrifice. But what's connected to this is what comes at the end of chapter 4, that last line that men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, this is Seth is the son that is given to Adam and Eve to replace Abel. And his firstborn is Enosh. And it's in that second or actually the third generation, that men, plural, because now you've multiplied quite a few on the earth, that just because Cain, Abel, and Seth are the only ones mentioned doesn't mean they, they only had three children. They had a lot more. They had to at least have sisters. They had to have daughters, and Cain, Abel, and Seth had to have sisters. Because it, up until the giving of the Mosaic Law, there was uh, nothing, no prohibitions against marrying siblings because that's all they had for a long time and first cousins. But the genetic pool at that time, for those of you who wonder about that, the genetic pool was so rich and full and complex that you didn't have genetic problems with siblings marrying or people who are too close in relationship marrying. It didn't. It wasn't until the human race got really spread out and that gene pool got, got thinned out to some degree that God then said that there would be restrictions on marrying siblings. So that came only under the Mosaic Law. Remember, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, um, Rebecca, who Isaac marries, is a cousin. These are this was very common in the ancient world, but it is ever since the time of the Mosaic Law, roughly fourteen forty six BC, this has been prohibited. But before that, it was uh, it was not. So when we look at Genesis four one, we see that that. Eve is very focused on the Lord. She calls her firstborn kind, meaning I have acquired something. It's related to the word to purchase or buy or to be given, and she's given a man from the Lord, and she thinks this is the seed that will defeat the serpent. So she says, I've acquired a man from the Lord, and then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now you'll read some people say, see, this is the ongoing battle between the cattlemen and the shepherds. No, 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 let's not get off into all that. There were preachers in the Wild West, the so-called Wild West, especially in places like Wyoming and other places where you initially had cattlemen and big ranches with cattle, and then the uh, shepherds came in with their sheep and and goats, and there were the big battles between the cattlemen and the shepherds, and you would hear sermons based on Genesis four, the uh, you know the from time immemorial the battle between the cattlemen and the sheep herders, and that's just reading something into the text, and then we read something very interesting that happens in verse three and four. And in the process of time, that's the King James Version. It's a good translation. It's not quite accurate, but it's close. It's closer than other translations. Uh, as I put up here on the screen, uh, the NET Bible says, at the designated time. And there's other translations that will just say, and it came to pass when. But the Hebrew term is very clear. It's at the end of days, at the end of a set period of days. And we'll look at the significance of that in a minute. But a certain set prescribed period of time had gone by. 
It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, to Yahweh. And so why is he bringing this offering? You know, this ought to raise certain questions. If you've read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and now you read that Cain is bringing an offering uh, of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, you should ask, well, what does this word offering mean? Who told him to bring an offering? Uh, what kind of offering is this? Um, and what is the purpose of this offering? Uh, where did they get this idea? And I think that's one of the things we can infer from the end of Genesis chapter 3 is that something must have been taught to Adam and Eve surrounding this uh, making of the, of the covering of animal skins, which is, I think is a picture of imputation of righteousness, but something had to have been explained there. We see that there are other things that happen when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and 7, when God gives instructions to Noah to take seven of every clean animal onto the ark and two of every unclean animal, where did he get the idea of clean and unclean? If you were a Jew and you heard this, um, is that thunder? Well, let's hope we get a little rain. Uh, if you were a Jew and you were living uh, at, in the Exodus generation, then you knew what a clean and an unclean animal, uh, what, what clean and unclean animals were. And if you were, uh, after you heard the law given at Sinai, it was specified. But how did Noah know that? Well, obviously there had been some revelation for him to have known what the difference was. And so once again, these are the, the hints that we have in Scripture that there was a lot more communicated from God to Adam and the other patriarchs than what is revealed to us during this period. And I can't wait to get to heaven and start asking questions like, what was left out? I want to know what was going on during that whole period, that almost 2,000 years before the flood. What was that like? Let's see the movie. And, um, and I think that's going to be fun. But what is it all about this offering? And there, uh, there's a lot of debate and discussion about the answers to each one of these questions because so little is told us about the question. So the first question is, what's the meaning of the word offering? This is not the word for sacrifice. It is the word mincha, which is used to describe an offering where an animal is sacrificed, as it is here, because Abel also brings a mincha to God. In verse 4, we read, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his mincha. Now, when you get into Leviticus, mincha is almost exclusively used of a grain offering. So some people call it a cereal offering, but it's basically the grain offering at harvest time. And that's described in Luke 2, 1 through 6, I mean, Leviticus 2, 1 through 16, and 6, uh, 14 to 23. And so it wasn't a, uh, a blood offering. It was, uh, but here, because it's applied to what? Abel brings, it is also said, it would also describe a meat offering, which would imply death. And so it has a broader distinction and meaning than what it normally has in Leviticus. There it seems to be a narrower sense. But it's also used in secular writings just to refer to a gift from an inferior to a superior. It could be an, even a gift between two people of equal stature. So it is a gift, and that's the core idea in that underlies many of the sacrifices. They are gifts given back to God. And so this is part of the picture that we see um, with Abel's offering, and we'll talk about the quality of that in just a minute. Second thing is when to bring the offering. Literally, it says at the end of days. Now, this doesn't tell us a whole lot, does it? But it seems to suggest that there was some sort of schedule, there was, which means there was some sort of calendar, 
and they were a, they were supposed to wait until a certain amount of time, and at the completion of that time period, they would bring offerings. Now, what this suggests is that even at this early stage, God has given them some sort of calendar. Later, this is given much more precision when you come to the Jewish calendar and you have your spring feast days and your fall feast days. By the way, we're uh, approaching uh, the Jewish fall festivals. Rosh Hashanah, the new year, is on the 10th of September. And then on the uh, 18th, ending on the 19th, you have Yom Kippur. And there's a couple of other days that come after that. Uh, which are significant in the in the Jewish calendar. When you get into the Christian era, they followed that procedure and said we should observe certain things annually and remember certain things annually. During the period of the Middle Ages, this got a little overboard, and so not only did you have the basics of Christmas and uh, Resurrection Day, but many other days were noted and advertised and, and were part of worship so that a, a very complex church calendar uh, developed during the period of the Middle Ages. And as part of the Reformation, they divested themselves of a lot of that. And we get into a lot of churches today, and they don't pay much attention to that other than the birth of our Lord at, at Christmas and the resurrection of our Lord in, in the spring. But we also have the day of Pentecost, which was significant because that's the birthday of the church. And, you know, we might ask the question, why is it that we never, as Christians, celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost? There are a lot of churches that do. Uh, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, they still have their very detailed, complex calendars. But I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be paying attention to some of these days because they are significant. And part of the reason for that is to be reminded of what happened on those days and to remember those things, I'm not going overboard on that. But it seems like there's a, at least a, a found, if this was all we had, we, we wouldn't develop it. But it seems like from the very beginning, something that is developed all the way through Scripture and follows even into the early church is this establishment of a uh, ritual calendar, a calendar for remembering certain key events. And that whole idea of memory, of course, is embedded in Scripture. It's important for us to be reminded because we do forget very quickly. So that's the idea there. When should they bring the offering? They had some sort of instruction from God as to when they were to bring that offering. Now, what kind of offering is it? As I pointed out, the word mencha can refer to a grain offering, and that would be a thanksgiving offering uh, in the Levitical law, but this is long before you have the details of the Levitical law in, enacted. Uh, is it an atoning sacrifice? I can understand there, there, a whole lot of people say this has nothing to do with an animal sacrifice versus a vegetable sacrifice. Okay, I'll show you why I think that's wrong. But, but for the time being and for our topic, I don't think that that's as important as recognizing a key principle here is that this is, this is a historical event, but it is a paradigm. It is a paradigm that there are two kinds of people. There are, other than the two kinds of people, one being those who divide everybody into two kinds of people and those who don't, there's another breakdown of two kinds of people. There are those who come to worship God on God's terms because they want to please the Lord. And that there are those who come who want to worship God on their terms and to use God and manipulate God to get what they want. And that's what we see in the distinction between uh, Cain and Abel. But one of the reasons that I think that this is a blood sacrifice and that Abel's offering is, um, to, is should be understood as a blood sacrifice is contextually... 
it lies between only two mentions of sacrifice or indications of a sacrifice in the book in the beginning of Genesis. You have clearly the implication of a sacrifice when God kills the animals to make the clothing for Adam and Eve. And then the next time you have anything specific said, it's in Genesis chapter 8, when Noah builds an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird. That's why there had to be seven, because one was going to be taken for this offering and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, where did he get that idea? Burnt offerings are never mentioned before this time. This is brand new, and it's a different language. It's not a mincha, but you have a clear indication of a blood sacrifice in Genesis 3, and this is clearly a an animal sacrifice here, that it makes more sense. If that's all you had, it would be more consistent to see the distinction between Cain and Abel as being an animal sacrifice. But we have the value of three passages in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11.4, we're told that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, let's think about that. By faith means that Abel is operating on the basis of faith. He's not just saying, oh, I believe God will take mine. That's mysticism, that's emptiness. Faith is always in a a proposition from God. It's in a specific piece of revelation from God, a statement from God. And so Abel is believing something that God said, and Cain is not believing it. And then we're told that Abel offers to God a more excellent sacrifice. Now, what this means is the sacrifice itself was a, of Abel's was a higher quality than the sacrifice of Cain's. Now, that could be for two reasons. It could be that the issue really isn't between a blood sacrifice and a grain offering, both of which possibly, as the argument goes, possibly could be accepted by God. But then the emphasis would be on what Abel brought. Notice in verse 4 it says, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. Now that is a really important statement that most of us just fly by as if it's just words. He brings the firstborn of his flock. Who told him to bring the firstborn? Who told him that the firstborn was better? And then he says, and of their fat. Who told him to bring the fat? And why is he bringing the fat? What's the big deal about fat? I thought, we, we, you know, if you were li- lived in the early, uh, early stages of mankind, you lived on a, on a paleo diet, and so you really didn't necessarily have that much fat. So what's going on with all this fat and the animal, Okay. Let's think about it a minute. First of all, I don't know. Anybody here ever raise sheep? I used to ask that. You did, you did when you were a kid, didn't you? Yeah. I miss Gene Brown. Gene Brown and I had a lot of talks because Gene knew a lot about what it was to, be a, to, to herd sheep and to be a shepherd. And there are a lot of things about sheep that's pretty nasty. But if you have flocks, you and, and how many people think that, that that um, Abel just had 15 or 20 sheep. I don't think anybody would believe that. He probably had hundreds of sheep. And in most of the scenarios that we have in the Old Testament, the shepherds would have had hundreds of sheep. You don't, one thing I know about sheep is you can't go out this afternoon and look among your 800 or 1,000 sheep and say, that one was the first one born this spring. You can't do it. You have to have been watching for that firstborn. And when that first lamb is born at the beginning of the spring, to make sure you don't lose sight of it, you have to take that lamb and the mama and you have to isolate them. You have to build a special pen for them. And then you have to take care of that lamb in a very special way because you know that this lamb is going to be a sacrifice to God. 
And so you're going to feed the lamb, you're going to take care of it, a lot like uh, if you're familiar with high school programs, you have uh, FFA, the Future Farmers of America, you have 4-H clubs, and you have these kids. You go down to the uh, stock show at the Houston Rodeo, and all these kids are bringing these livestock that they have uh, raised and prepared to show. And that's what it would have been like. You would You would have isolated this lamb as soon as that little lamb was born knowing that this lamb is going to be the sacrifice to God and you're going to feed it. It's not going to be like the the Jews were when they were apostate at the time of Malachi when Malachi says, you guys are just bringing the scrawniest, most diseased uh, lambs uh, to sacrifice to God, but that's not right. You bring the first and you bring the best. So that's what they were bringing. They were bringing the first, and they were bringing the best, and that was what was going to be there for God. So they had to really pay attention to it, and they had to uh, feed and nourish and take care of this one lamb. It was going to be the very best. Now, the fat is important also. As I pointed out, I've thought about this for years. I've talked to Jay many times about what's so significant about the fat. And it finally occurred to me as I was doing study that you don't have fat sheep or fat cattle if God hasn't given you a lot of rain and a lot of grain. And so what fat means is that God has blessed you richly. And you have animals that are fat because God has given you abundance. And so now you're giving the best of what God has given you. It symbolizes that God has richly blessed you, and you're giving that back to God. But somebody had to tell him about that. It's interesting in the, uh, in the law that you have a lot of regulations related to giving the first fruits to God the firstborn, the first fruits. In fact, there's a, there's a law in Leviticus 19.23. I don't know about you all. I know some of you have lime trees and lemon trees. And I know a couple of years ago, we got our first uh, lemon tree. The first year, we got like five or six lemons, and that was really great. And then the next year, we got about eight or nine, and this year, it looks like we might get 15 or so. But if you are an Israelite, and you planted your fruit orchard, your apple orchard, or your date orchard, or whatever it was, God says in Leviticus 19.23, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. How many of you all notice that in your daily Bible reading as you've gone through Leviticus and your eyes are glazing over? What is uncircumcised fruit? Well, what that means is that which was uncircumcised was not set apart to the Lord. That which is uncircumcised is that which has not been dedicated to the Lord. And so their fruit is uncircumcised, so that means it's unclean. It's not under the covenant, and so they can't eat it. And you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It's not saying it's uncircumcised. It's using that as a metaphor that it's unclean. It's not permissible. So for the first three years, you can't eat the fruit from your fruit trees. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy. So now you've waited four years, but now it's holy. That means it's set apart to God. So all of the fruit that you get in your fourth year harvest is taken to the temple and is given to God. It's your first fruits. That is the best. And so that is your first offering. So you have to wait to the fifth year. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. So that's what God wants from us is our best because he's the one who gave it to us. I pointed this out, I think, Sunday morning that there was a rabbinical illustration that giving offerings to God is like a little girl going out into her mother's garden and cutting a bouquet of flowers and putting it all together and decorating it and then giving it to her mother as a present. It's her mother's flowers. It's her mother's garden. 
and she has done something with it that is beautiful and attractive and gives this as a gift to her mother. That is what we're doing when we give back to God. Whatever it is that we have made or produced, we made it and we produced it with that which God made to begin with. It's like that joke that I've used for many years about the uh, scientists who finally created life in the laboratory. And they were so overjoyed, and they said, we don't need God anymore, so we're, we're going we're gonna to go off and tell God that, that we don't need him anymore, and uh, we'll even uh, challenge him uh, to a uh, contest. And so they go off, and they're going to challenge God to a contest, say, we can make man just as good as you can. And God says, okay, I'll accept the challenge, and since you challenged, I'll let you go first, and you make a man. And so the scientist scooped down. He scooped up some dirt, and God said, no, 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 no. You make your own dirt. See, everything we have comes from God. You may think that you do well at your job, but everything related to that job originally came from God. And God gives us everything. He gives us all the raw materials out of which we have manufactured uh, something to glorify God. So then we get it, we get into this passage of Hebrews eleven four. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It was qualitatively better. Now it could have been qualitatively better because he gave the firstborn and their fat, but maybe it was because he gave the right kind of sacrifice. But that's in contrast, before we move on, that's contrast because it doesn't say that Cain brought the first fruit of the ground. It says he just brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. So it could be qualitative. He just brings whatever he's got. It's not the first fruit. And uh, Abel is bringing the first fruit. But I think it's more than that. In Hebrews twelve twenty four, we read, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, what's interesting here is we have to break down the Greek language a little bit. The head noun in the phrase, the blood of sprinkling, is the blood. And the blood is a um, neuter uh, singular here, a neuter dative singular, and the pronoun, I mean the participle that speaks is also a neuter dative singular. That means that the participle modifies the noun blood. What is it that speaks better things is the blood. And so that speaks better things Um, than that of Abel, so that indicates that what Abel offered must be of the same character as the blood of sprinkling. That means that Abel's sacrifice had to be a blood sacrifice. And then we look at 1 John 3.12, Not as Cain, who is of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. It's not just that he didn't give them with the right attitude. It's that his works in and of themselves were evil. He gave the wrong kind of sacrifice. And usually when I have read, and I've read a lot of different people on this over the years, is they never go to these other passages, which are which are very informative in the New Testament. I think that the Hebrews passage and the others are, are the ones that really make it make it quite quite significant. So in Genesis 4, 3 and 4, what we read here is that in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. He is not seeking to please God. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. He is responding to God's revelation and worship is on the basis of 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 God's revelation. So this sets things up uh, for why this is correct. Now, I've already read that passage to you. Genesis 4.11, 
the consequence of Cain's sin. Uh, God says, so now you are cursed from the earth. What does it mean that you are cursed from the earth? Cursing and blessing are the opposites. Blessing refers to that which is when we are enriched. We may be enriched materially. We may be enriched spiritually. Our life experience is more joyful. Uh, that would be spiritual. Uh, we may have abundance in our produce and in the, our finances. That is how God enriches us. He can enrich us in our health, our family, our talents, and our abilities. To be cursed means to be removed from the place of blessing as a result of God's discipline for disobedience. And so this is what has happened. is He is judged by God. He's disciplined and removed from the place of blessing. You are cursed from the earth, the Adama, the rich soil that was to produce what he had brought to the Lord. He's now, it's now cursed for him. And it's opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Uh, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, let me point out a couple of things that are going on here that indicate by the writing of and telling of the story that God is really emphasizing this contrast between these two men. They represent two types of worshipers. And this contrast is indicated by the way Moses wrote this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Cain's name is mentioned 14 times. Abel's name is mentioned seven times, but the appellation his brother, referring to him as Cain's brother, is then mentioned seven times. So Cain's mentioned 14 times, Abel's mentioned 14 times. It's a perfect balance uh, contrasting one with the other. And so Cain then goes on and he is going to uh, quit being a farmer because he can't farm and his descendants are those that develop um, culture. They develop uh, music, they develop uh, metallurgy, uh, they develop the cities and all of these things, and culture and civilization develop with them. But there, is, and also there's an increase of sin and murder and the beginning of of polygamy. And the contrast that comes at the end of the chapter is that it's with the line of Seth that men began to call on the name of the Lord. So. We have to ask this question. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What is in a name? And I covered this a couple of weeks ago in um, in First Peter that we are talking to, in Peter he's talking to his recipients about suffering for the name of Jesus. What is this that the Bible emphasizes about the name? Well, first of all, in the scripture, names are not just simply Tags. It's not just simply nomenclature. It's not just saying, well, we're going to call this chair, but the name has nothing to do with the essence of what it is. And I like to, I've always used this illustration of a uh, medieval mystery novel written in modern times by Umberto Eco, an Italian writer. And he wrote a book called The Name of the Rose, which was later turned into a movie starring Sean Connery, his brother Bartholomew, and it's, he's sort of a Sherlock Holmes character. And the movie's fun and makes a lot more sense than the, um, than the book because the book has all kinds of themes and sub-themes. And you finish reading the book or watching the movie, and if you're a thinking person, you're going to say, why is it called The Name of the Rose? because there's nothing in it about a rose. And that's where you have to get into deep philosophy. And in deep, deep philosophy, you have something that developed in the Middle Ages called nominalism. And before that, you had realism. And in realism, you had the idea that 
names meant something and indicated the essence or the character of what they named. There's a correlation there. But in nominalism, names didn't mean anything. They weren't significant. And so Brother Bartholomew is a nominalist. And so the name of the rose is what the book is called, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything in the book. Okay, so it's a pun. But you have to... I was a when I read it, I was getting a master's in philosophy, so I just had great fun with the whole book because I was really into that at the time. But most of us would have missed that if otherwise. So, names in the Bible represent the nature, character of a person. Avram is the father of many, our exalted father rather, and Abraham is the father of multitudes. Uh, Jacob is the heel grabber. And Israel is the is the one who fought with God and who uh, is the uh, prince with God. And Jesus means Yeshua. It means Savior. So these names meant something and reflected something about the character of the individuals. When we come to understanding something about uh, the name of God... We read in Exodus 3.13, remember the theme is, why are they, what does it mean to call on the name of God? So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, in Exodus 3.13, Moses is talking to God, and he says, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say? And in verse 14, God answers and says, I am who I am. Now, the name of God, the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, it's not Jehovah. Jehovah is a bastardized word. It's uh, in, in German, most, a lot of early Jewish scholars were Ashkenazi in Germany. So when they saw a J, they wrote it as a Y. Or when they saw a Y, they wrote it as, as a J. And when they saw a, uh, a V, they wrote it as a W, because that's how the, the uh, J was pronounced like a Y, and the V was pronounced, I mean, the W was pronounced like a V in, uh, in German. And so that's where you got J-H-V-H. And then because the Jews don't ever read the name of God out loud because it's holy, they when they put vowel points in, they put the vowels, the Hebrew vowels for Adonai, under the consonants for Yahweh. And that would remind them that they were to read Adonai instead of Yahweh when they read through the text. Today they'll frequently read Hashem, the name. So in the mid-1400s, you had uh, a, a priest who was doing transcribing, and he began to transcribe the name of God as J-E-H-O-V-A-H. And that's the origin of the name Jehovah. The consonants come from one name and the vowels come from another name. So that's not really God's name. And so, uh, but the, the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh, comes from Hayah, the Hebrew verb that means to be or to exist. And so God is saying that my name means the one who is self-existent. I am the one who always has existed. And that is my essence. Now, this was not a name that was unknown because we know that Yahweh walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and the name of Yahweh is mentioned in chapter 4, which I just read through in 5 and 6. And Abraham called on the name of Yahweh uh, all the way through uh, the story of Abraham. But what it means is they learned something new about the meaning and significance of his name, that it emphasized his being the self-existent one. And so this shows us that God's name means something. In Genesis 12, 8, we read that uh, Abraham moved uh, from Shechem or Shechem. He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And some of you have been with me when we've stopped the van or the bus in Israel right at that spot and could look west to Bethel and east to I. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Say, I got goosebumps the first time I I went to that location. 
In Genesis 12:33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba when he went south to Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And in Genesis 26:25, Isaac built an altar there at Bethel and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. Oh, this is in Beersheba also. Called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants uh, dug a well. And in Exodus 34, 5, this is a real kicker. How do you know what it means to call on the name of the Lord? Does it mean to evangelize? Doesn't work here. Does it mean to uh, proclaim or preach? That's not quite what it means here. Does it mean to pray? It's not what it means here. Because you have the exact same phrase here in verse Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud on Mount Sinai and stood with him, that is with Moses there, and he, that is God, proclaimed the name of the Lord. And, and, and so God is telling and revealing who he is, his essence, his character. He's revealing himself to Moses. That's what it means to call on the name of something is to tell something about the essence or character of someone. So we get also look at passages like uh, Exodus 33:19, uh, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, his goodness, his character. So in both of these passages, in Exodus 34 and Exodus 33:19, uh, he emphasizes his character. In Exodus 34:5, the Lord descended in the cloud, and in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. See, he's proclaiming who he is, his character. That's what, when it says uh, calling upon the name of the Lord, it is Abraham was teaching about who Yahweh was to the surrounding pagans and the Canaanites. We see the opposite of this in 1 Kings 18.26, where the uh, prophets of Baal are calling on the name of Baal, and they're reciting all of his different names and titles which relate to who Baal was. In Isaiah 9.6, we see that the name of the Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, uh, should be Father of Eternity and Prince of Peace. These are not names that are given to G Jesus or the Messiah, but these reflect his character, who he is. And so that's fulfilled in Matthew one twenty one that uh, Mary is specifically told to call his name Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. It has a significance. And salvation is based on this. John 1.12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. That's not just believing in a, a, a nomenclature or the name that's on a birth certificate. It's believing in who he is and what he's done. His character, you're believing Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That's not saying, oh, I believe there was somebody named Jesus. I believe that was his name. That's not what it means. It means you believe who he was and what he did. And the fourth we see that it represents the character of the Father. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are, are one. And in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name. I have come as a representative of his character. Um, this is what he did. No one had seen the Father at any time, but Jesus had explained him. He is the revelation, uh, the one who reveals the Trinity. John 17, 26, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. That means I manifested your character. They could look at me and see what you're like. John 17, 11, these are men I kept through your name, the, uh, those whom you gave me through your character. 
John 17, 12, uh, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. In other words, by your character, by your essence, by who you are. And so on 17, 26, and I've declared to them your name. I've taught them who you are, your essence, and I will declare it. And then in the upper room, Jesus says we're to pray in Jesus' name. Now, this isn't some magic formula to conclude prayer by saying, in the name of Jesus. And if I say in the name of Jesus, then my prayer is going to be answered. But if I don't say in the name of Jesus, my prayer won't be answered. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's fine to conclude prayer that way because it teaches the principle that we come to God on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that we come to him because he is our high priest. And this is what Jesus is saying. Whatever you ask in my name, when you come representing your prayer based on who I am and what I've done, then the Father will be glorified and the Father will listen. But that's because we're coming and our prayer is based on who Jesus is and what he did. Now think about that the next time you pray, that when you pray for all the things that you're praying for on your prayer list, think about the fact that you're praying it because this represents who Jesus is and what he did and God's and his plan for you as a believer. That is a rich, robust understanding of what we're praying for, that we're praying these things because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And that's our authorization to come into the presence of God. So Jesus makes these statements. If you ask anything in my name, on the basis of who I am, I will do it. In John fifteen sixteen. whatever you ask the Father in my name, on the basis of who I am and what I've done. Also in John sixteen twenty three to 26, this is repeated again and again. I have it's on the basis of who Jesus is that we come into his presence. So when we're looking at worship, what we see here is that worship now, after Genesis 3 and because of Genesis 3, is based on an accurate understanding of God's revelation. Cain fails, Abel passes. Second, worship is not determined by the thinking or the attitude or the uh, mental attitude or the ideas of the worshiper, it's based on who God, what God has said about worship. We come to worship God on his terms and not on our terms. And a new thing that we've learned tonight uh, is that, uh, along with sacrifice, is that we come in the name of this God to proclaim his name. So that part of worship involves sacrifice it's going to involve, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, it'll involve confession. It involves sacrifice because that's a recognition of the sin problem. Uh, it is going to involve calling on the name of the Lord or proclaiming who he is and what he has done. So those are elements that we see added in now uh, in Genesis 4 because of what God has done. So we'll come back next time and start working our way a little bit through the perversions of worship that develop in Genesis and then uh, get into Exodus a little bit. Father, thank you for this time that we can think about worship, that we can think about the fact that we come in the name of Jesus. We come because of who Jesus is and because of what he did for us. He is our foundation. He is our only hope. We are in him. And on that basis and that basis alone, we have the privilege of praying to you. Father, we pray that you would help us to think about the things we're learning about worship, that it might elevate our thinking and that we may have a much more robust concept of what it means to be in your image, that we are to serve you in preparation for our future role as king priests. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.